Well, this morning, I'm excited. We start a new series on the letter to the first Corinthians in the New Testament of the Bible. Uh, We're calling it a letter to the church, volume one, both because it is a church letter and also because it is the first uh, part of a two-part series we're going to do. We're going to study the first 11 chapters through the rest of the summer, and then we'll come back in the fall and pick up the rest of the book for volume two. Before we get started, there is something I want to bring to your attention, um, and that is you may have heard us talk about, or maybe you saw us show a video, or you got an email about September 7th, something called CPC Night. And uh, I just want to highlight this for a second because I think it's incredibly important that it's on your radar. Um, I believe that that night will be a a defining night of vision for this congregation. That it'll be a a once-in-a-generation chance for us to talk about the future of CPC and where we believe God is taking us. Now, this is not something that like I sat in my office and had a great idea and let's do this. Um, We sat with our elders, with our leaders, with our staff for over a year and a half prayerfully discerning what has God been doing in this church and where do we believe God is leading us? And more importantly, what kind of ways do we need to practice our faith together that we believe will take us into the future that God has for us? And so we're excited to share that with you, to process, to invite you in, to be a part of the next season of CPC. Put it on your calendars. You'll get an invite soon to RSVP for it. I would love to see a thousand CPCers show up to our campus that night to have good conversations around, around the future of this church. Please join us. This is not just something for staff. Uh, This is something for each and every one of us. It will require all of us digging in to be a part of the future that God has for our church and the ways our church impacts lives and our community and the world. It will take all of us digging in. Speaking of digging in, grab your Bibles. And we're going to look at 1 Corinthians. You have Pew Bibles in front of you. If you don't have your Bible on you, we'd love for you to turn there. Uh, the Pew Bibles are still kind of new. So, you know, I want to make sure all the parts of the Bible get turned to in them. And so open them up. Feel free to make notes in them if you need to. The Bible is meant to be uh, well used and loved and help us uh, listen to what God is saying to us. And so we're in 1 Corinthians. Um, and as you turn there, I'll set it up. So 1 Corinthians uh, was a letter written to the church in a place called Corinth in ancient Greece. And uh, it was written around the year 54, 55 AD by uh, the apostle Paul, one of the earliest Christ followers, earliest converts to Christianity. Um, He took what are known as missionary journeys. He had three journeys. On his second journey, he stopped in Corinth. He stayed there for 18 months. He had a very fruitful ministry. The church grew and blossomed. And then when he left, he kept correspondence to help pastor them through some of the sticky situations that came up. It truly is a church letter. And it addresses all kinds of gritty, raw, real controversies and things that they were wrestling with in their local church. We're going to jump in and look at one of those today. So starting in verse 10, after a quick intro or or greeting in verses 1 through 9, in verse 10, he jumps right into one of these controversies. He says, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. My brothers and sisters, some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul. Another, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Cephas. And still another, I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? 
I thank God that I did not baptize any of you except Crispus and Gaius, so no one can say that they were baptized in my name. And and then if you notice in verse 16, he kind of has like an aside, like a thought in his own head that he decides to write down. Yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanas. Beyond that, I don't remember if I baptized anyone else. (laughs) I do that in emails sometimes where I just start, my mind wanders, delete that sentence. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom and eloquence, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Let's stop right there. So the letter begins with an appeal. And it's not much different than if you had like a family member who was living in a way that you disagreed with or, or a business partner or a colleague that you were at odds with and you wrote to them an urgent letter, go, can you please consider the way that you're living, that it doesn't line up with your values. It doesn't line up with who I know you to be. So it starts with this urgent appeal for them. And he says for them to agree with one another in what they say and that there be no divisions among them, but they, they are perfectly united in mind and thought. And that simple idea is actually the heart behind the letter to the first Corinthians, that something better and more beautiful is possible when we're unified by the gospel, something better and more beautiful is possible. And I would encourage you to write that down because that will frame the way we see the book of first Corinthians. That's what the apostle Paul is trying to get this church to see that the gospel is the thing that unites them, that unity is essential to the calling that God has on the church. Now, one thing is incredibly obvious as we read first Corinthians, and there was a lack of unity in the church and there was a, they were hurting. They were hurting because of a lack of unity. It's like if you imagine watching uh, a hockey team or a soccer team or a basketball team, and they've got a bunch of really good players, but they're not playing together as a team, right? So they might have good individual performances. Some, Some might do well, some might not, but they never win because they can't play together as a team. They can't play unified. And so they might have good players, but they're never gonna win. You would never look at that team and go, let's be like that team. Let's do that. Let's build a team that looks like that. Again, some great players, but they never win. Who would want a team that looks like that? And that's exactly what was happening with the church is that people were looking at the church and going, that's how God's people live. Who would want to live that way? Because they were so ununified in the ways that they lived and the ways they treated each other. They were meant to put the goodness of God on display, but their lives were falling short of that. So lack of unity always distracts us from what could be. It, it limits the possibilities because it causes us to focus on what we don't have rather than what God has given us. And this wasn't just like, we don't agree on the carpet color, lack of unity, or we don't agree traditional or contemporary music, robes or no robes. This was about being divided over their identity and their purpose. They weren't unified around who they were. In fact, the Greek for the phrase perfectly united is to speak the same thing, to speak the same thing. So he wasn't calling for uniformity to say that they should have all the same preferences. They should like all the same things. He was calling for them to have a unified way of seeing themselves, of speaking of themselves, that that their identity should be united around Christ, that it would be the central thing, that the church united would represent one thing to the world. I love this uh, quote by Presbyterian pastor Eugene Peterson, he's describing 1 Corinthians and he says, Paul's first letter to the Corinthians is affectionate, firm, 
clear and unswerving in the conviction that God among them, revealed in Jesus and present in his Holy Spirit, continued to be the central issue in their lives, regardless of how much of a mess they had made of things. What a word of hope. We're likely to make messes of things. We have disagreements over preferences. That's okay. When Jesus is the center of our story, we don't allow preferences to get in the way of mission. And we don't allow preferences to get in the way of the deep work that Jesus wants to do in our souls because we're united around the gospel. But there's a lot out there that's vying for our attention. There's a lot that's vying to displace the gospel in our lives. And so Paul goes on to call out something that's causing a lack of unity in their church. He says, one of you says, I follow Paul, which is himself. Another, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Cephas. Cephas is another name for Peter, one of the early disciples of Jesus. You heard uh, Calvin talk about uh, Peter's house a little while ago, St. Peter. Still another, I follow Christ. That was what was dividing them. And I do need to put you guys on notice. It's almost football season which means that you'll hear more football analogies soon, almost meaning two months away, so almost. But football is a great example of, of how we attach to human leaders, that we invest ourselves in head coaches and star quarterbacks, and if you're the Vikings, maybe star wide receivers, that we attach to human leaders. It's not just football players, though. It's in all areas of our lives. We attach ourselves to counselors and pastors, to parents and teachers, to celebrities and politicians, business leaders and self-help gurus, social media personalities. We attach ourselves to them. And it's not bad. It's not bad to have leaders that we follow or like, but what had happened in the city of Corinth and the church was that there were these factions that rose up and some even claimed, I follow Christ. Now, you might be thinking, maybe those are the real Christians. That's not what that meant. He's sort of uh, hinting at the kinds of people who you may have met, who they like to align their opinion or their preferences with the way Jesus would have done it, just as a way of making sure you know that they're right. That's what he's talking about here. And so in the city of ancient Corinth, which was the second most important city in the, the Greek world at the time, in the Roman, uh, the Roman world, uh, it was a city of wealth and a city of trade. And in a city of wealth and trade, you often wanted to make sure that you were aligned with the right kinds of people. You might say that they had, you wanted to make sure you had hitched your wagon to the right horse. And that culture had bled over into the church, that they were more concerned about who they had hitched their wagon to than about growing in their trust in Jesus. And that was the source of their lack of unity. So over the next eight weeks, we're going to see some of the ways that that lack of unity plays out. But the source was that they would put their trust in the identities of these public figures, these leaders, rather than in Christ. But the ways it plays out is in all kinds of toxic uh, behaviors and living in sin and living in conflict because they had found themselves being allured away from the hope of the gospel to something that was more immediately gratifying. You see, we, uh, we often gravitate to human leaders and, and invest in them and attach ourselves to them because they represent something that we want to be. And honestly, they, it's kind of like a shortcut to a new identity. 
Like I, I might not be as smart as my favorite theologian. I might not be as good of a leader as that, that business guru that wrote that book that I love. But if I quote them enough, if I name drop them, if I read them enough, maybe people will start to think I'm like them too. Like it's a shortcut to an identity. And the problem with that is we don't do the heavy lifting of transformation. We believe identifying with that person does the transformation for us. And we leave life change on the table while we pursue the convenience of attaching ourselves to another human's identity or leadership. And what happens is we often end up becoming self-righteous and maybe judgmental, but nothing like Jesus. Who do you follow? Who do you identify with for the purposes of achieving comfort or success or power? Because if we're not careful, we can often look to human leaders that impress us or that we want to be like to offer us what only Christ can. They offer a convenient path, but the gospel is the way of sacrifice and obedience. In fact, the Apostle Paul in this letter and in multiple letters talks about the ways that he is willing to suffer and to serve for the sake of the gospel. He didn't, he just like Jesus, he didn't come so that others would serve him. He came to serve. It's the way of sacrifice and obedience because it's about Jesus, not about Paul, not about me, not about any other leader. And like, I don't, I don't think there's any chance of this happening, but I do want to name as the senior leader of this church, I don't want you to attach to me. Not one bit. It's part of the reason why we, like I don't preach all the time. We have a lot of great communicators. They're wonderful preachers, but also because we need to hear from different voices. And the only person I want you to attach to is Jesus. The only person I want you pointed towards when you come to this church is Jesus, not me, not any other leader. Don't rally around me. Don't rally around any other human. Rally around the son of God who gave his life for you. That's what Paul says, actually. He says, is Christ divided? Do you think Jesus is sharing the spotlight with someone else? Was Paul crucified for you? Only Jesus died for you. No one else has sacrificed their life for you. Earthly leaders may even ask you to sacrifice for them. But who benefits in the end? Jesus gave everything for you, gave his life on the cross. Were you baptized in the name of Paul? Is he the one who helps you belong in God's family? He says, no, Jesus is the way. He is the way in and he is the destination. And Paul goes on and he makes his argument about who baptized who. And the point isn't that Uh, It isn't really about baptism. The point is that by identifying with these different personalities, they had become so divided that they were distracted from the mission that God had given them. And Paul says, I will not be distracted for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Not with wisdom and eloquence, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. And again, he has nothing against baptism. He's not saying baptism isn't important. He's saying that anything can become an idol to us. Anything can take the place of Jesus to us. Personalities and spiritual leaders and musical styles or things that are about human wisdom or performance or eloquence that impresses us, our preferences or anything else can lead us to abandon the power of the gospel. If we're not careful, it's easy to attach to something other than Jesus or a person other than Jesus 
And all of a sudden we lose the power of the gospel because that person does not have the power of Jesus to change your life. We're abandoning and emptying the gospel of its power when we attach to anyone but Jesus. As a church and as individuals, our life must be built not on what we can accomplish or who we can attach to other than Christ, but what God has accomplished for us. The good news is Jesus' sacrificial love for all people that has the power for our lives and the world. The gospel has power to change us. It's not just a good idea or a good sentence or good theology or a good doctrine. The gospel is the power of Jesus to change and transform our lives. And our role as a church is to keep the gospel at the center so that we can point to it over and over and over. That when you come here, we want you to be reminded not what you can do, but what Christ has done for you and the difference it makes in your life. And if we hold that up and be, if we're unified around that, we may all still have preferences and things we like or don't like, but we will be a church that flourishes in the power of the gospel and sees lives change. That's what I want for us, that something better and more beautiful is possible when we're unified by the gospel. What's possible? What's better? What more beautiful do you need? What's powerful in your life because of the gospel? The power of forgiveness, the power of second chances, the power of grace, the power of healing, the power that failure doesn't have to get the final word, that the burden of saving ourselves or our kids or our grandkids is not on our shoulders, the power for justice and hope and peace in our world and our time because of the power of the gospel. First Corinthians is a plea for unity. But not unity just for the sake of unity, not just unity for the sake of singing kumbaya, but unity because we have put the gospel at the center. Unity is a byproduct of our lives rallying around what Christ has done for us rather than anything else. Sky Jatani, a Christian author, says this, it is not our circumstances or behaviors or radical decisions that give our lives meaning and hope but our unity with God himself. Our unity with God himself. I've told you many stories about my family's uh, love of all things Marvel and superhero movies. And and don't worry, I'm not going to tell you another superhero story. Um, But... I think the reason that we're so captivated by superhero stories or stories of battle and conflict and victory or stories of teams coming together and overcoming obstacles, the reason that we watch those movies and read those books over and over again is because there's something beautiful about seeing people, individuals unified around a common goal and overcoming something that they could have never overcome on their own. And that is the reason 1 Corinthians exists. Because the Apostle Paul believes the power of sin and death will be overcome by the gospel and by humans rallying around it and putting it on display for the world to see that we fulfill the mission of Christ when we rally around the good news of Jesus. That's the reason for this letter. That's why we're studying it. Because that's the kind of people we want to be in the world. Amen? Let's pray together. Holy God holy and loving God who is near to us, who desires to be the center of our story. Let that sink deep into our bones. 
from everyone here this morning, from those who are excited about their faith and fired up about Jesus to those who maybe had a hard time getting here, would you infuse us with a fresh gift of your spirit that we would be reminded that our stories are not done and that you have something powerful for us individually and more importantly, together, that you desire to use us that our lives would matter and make a difference because you make a difference in us. Be real to us, remind us of your goodness. In the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit, amen.